Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Dare, dare to believe you can survive. You hold the future in your hand. Dare, dare to keep all of your dreams alive. It's time to take a stand. Welcome and hello, everyone, uh, to Lo-Fi Lectionary, your Bible podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. It is so, so good to be doing this again. I'm sorry so much for the long hiatus. I've probably missed it almost more than any of you guys. Um, but work has been really busy, and we've had a lot of changes in our, our family schedule and structure and stuff like that over the last year. Um so since the fall, it's been really hard to to get up and to do the podcast. So uh, I'm glad to be back. And also, um, I was kind of challenged by someone recently to be more what what they called the word the phrase they used was radically authentic. And so um, a little bit of even more authentic honesty here. Uh, my health hasn't been so good over the last uh, few months. Um, I struggle with anxiety um, just in my head. It's 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 the way my brain is wired. It's it's a thing I have to deal with daily. And when that anxiety kind of gets out of hand, it can lead to what I would call situational depression. And so for a number of months, um, as things were changing at work and at home and we were facing some new things, uh, my anxiety kind of got the best of me and, and I was pretty low for a few months, but I'm, I'm pulling out of it. I'm doing some new practices to help keep my brain healthy and to help it rewire itself, I'm learning about neuroplasticity and things like that. So I am so excited to be back because I think uh, I, I not only take me being able to make the time to sit down and do this as a sign of good health, but I know that doing this creative work actually helps me stay healthy. So I'd encourage you all to uh, to do the same. If uh, if that's anything you deal with, feel free to hit me up. We can, we can chat about it. But um, here we go. We're into the second half of Luke 19. I hope you uh, listened to the podcast already on the first half of Luke 19a. Um, a big turn in the story happens right into the middle of the chapter, so we put in a, a little a little bit of a break there. Um, but real quick, just to catch you up, uh, the last first half of the chapter uh, started off with these two great stories about uh, Zacchaeus, and then Jesus gives a parable about this nobleman and, and, and these servants or slaves. Um, in that Zacchaeus story, a couple notes to bring up that are going to come up in this half of the story as well. Uh, Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. That word for chief is archetolones in Greek. And uh, Luke, I think, deliberately mentions that he's a chief tax collector because Luke is going to introduce some other chiefs into the story soon. And he, I think he does that to set them up as two contrasting examples of how to respond to Jesus. Um, we also get some messianic expectation in that Zacchaeus story. At the end of that Zacchaeus story, Jesus is like, oh, today salvation has arrived in this household. And so if you're, if you're following Jesus, if you're in his audience, if you're just a passerby and you hear someone talking like that, you're, you're hope for something, some sort of messianic event, uh, some, something that's going to come in and, and rise up and save this nation of Israel and save God's people and usher in the kingdom, you might be like, oh, it's going to happen now. He said salvation arrives today. And we're actually going to see how Jesus uh, responds to some of that as well. It would be their natural response to think that the kingdom's coming right away. Um, and that that messianic expectation for a lot of people at the time meant that they were like, the Messiah is here. It's going to be a new king. And the first thing we got to do is get all those Romans and Gentiles out of our country to reestablish God's kingdom. It was it was part of the plan. Like for them, it's like salvation doesn't happen until Israel is reestablished as our own country. It's the promised land. It's ours. Um, and 
that often for most people in the way that they thought of it came through some sort of a military rebellion, if not conquest. And uh, we'll see how Jesus deals with that as well. Then after that story, we got the parable. And the parable, this ruler with these slaves who the, the ruler leaves and he, and, he, and he gets given authority over this land and he returns to it. And, and the whole story is about what does he find when he returns? Have the caretakers and the servants been doing their job? And the parable itself could be looked at as a story uh, that's partly Jesus's response to people who are like, yes, yes, this is the, the messianic moment. Today, the kingdom of God is coming and this whole parable is about how there's a delay, like the ruler has to leave for a while and come back. So his audience could actually take that story two ways. They could say, oh, in the parable, Jesus is saying that the delay is over. He's returned. He's coming to finish the work. Or they could be like, well, is he saying the delay is yet to come? That he's here now, but he's leaving and he might be back later. So those questions and that tension is up in the air. And that's all in the, in the, in the air of things as we continue forward. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into Luke 19b, and we'll see where we go. We only, we're going to start with one short sentence. After Jesus said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And this is where the whole story turns into the last big major section of the story. Um, so all through here, we had the introduction of Jesus as a, as a character, as, as kind of a hero character in this biography. And then it goes into this middle section where he starts to get some opposition and he starts to teach some new things and he's building a following, but there's followings on both sides. There's the people kind of rising up and speaking out against him. And there's the people who are joining him, joining him, joining him. And everyone's confused about what he is. And we're going to go into a section. Um, remember, uh, we mentioned this before that Jerusalem is a special focal point for the story. In, uh, in the book of Luke. So um, everything kind of either happens away from or going towards or within Jerusalem. Like there's a significance to what that distance is. And so here Jesus has kind of been circling around Jerusalem, talking about the end of his work for a while. And now here he goes. It's going to happen. It's ushering in the big climax of the story. And take note, it's going up to Jerusalem. In the book of Luke, um, geographical places, rising, lowering language, away, close language, all has significance, I think. And so he's going up to Jerusalem. So there's that theme of, of some things come from low and go up. And Jesus says, some things that are up come down. It all goes way back to Mary's song. And uh, Jerusalem, just to give you a little bit of history, if you, if you haven't been up on it so far, um, that's like the local point or the focal point of, um, or the locus of uh, both political and religious life in this country of Israel. Uh, it's where the temple is. It's where the king lives, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and we've seen Jerusalem come up in a couple stories so far. So in Luke chapter two, Jesus's parents take him to the temple to be dedicated to God. Um, and there Jesus actually receives prophecy and is recognized by a couple people as the Messiah, even when he's just a little baby. Um, so when uh, Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation, God, when his eyes see Jesus. And so the question then becomes, now that Jesus is returning to Jerusalem after his work, who's going to recognize him this time? Or will anyone recognize him? And what are they going to do in response? And uh, the prophecy was given at, in that chapter when he was just a little baby um, that that this boy was said was destined for the rising and falling. Remember, there we get that language of many in Israel and will be a sign to be opposed. So we're not heading into a big, wonderful celebration. It looks like we might be heading into a place of clear opposition to Jesus. Uh, in that same chapter, Luke 2, Jesus goes back when he's an older boy and he's teaching and he teaches among the, the, the elders and, and amongst the teachers in the temple. 
And he identifies the temple as his father's house to his parents. He just seems to identify closely with it, even as um, it becomes a place where it's a center of opposition to him as well. Isn't that interesting? Um, then in Luke 4, um, Jesus returns to Jerusalem. The devil takes him to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. And therefore, in that place, we see Jerusalem as a place where it's a power center, but that because it's a power center, it's not safe. It's actually a place of temptation for Jesus. Um, and then lastly, in Luke 18, we get a parable that involves the temple where a Pharisee and a tax collector go into the temple, go into Jerusalem, and their true selves are revealed through their prayers. So one guy prays one way, one guy prays the other. And Jesus is like, one guy was revealed, his heart was revealed, and it's good. He's going to get in the kingdom. And the other one has actually revealed that he is far away from the kingdom. Go back and read that story if you need to catch up. So here we all see the stage has been set for a long time for this climax of the story. And there we're going to see who's in with Jesus, who opposes Jesus, as everyone's like true natures and true motives and true selves will be revealed as this goes on. Let's go on further in the text. When Jesus had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples forward saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said, asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So um, it's our first little section of the story. It's a nice little passage involving a donkey, so that's kind of cool. I like animals. Um, and it's set as uh, being near Bethphage and Bethany, which are like the suburbs outside of Jerusalem. I've heard they're about three quarters of a mile out. Um, so he's getting pretty close. Um, and he's preparing for his entrance. And the first part of it actually tells us something about how Jesus presents himself. So he asks, go ahead um, into the village and get a cult, and specifically a cult that's never been written. And this draws on royal imagery from another place earlier in the Bible, from, a, from the book of Zechariah chapter 9, um, where it's like uh, the king will write in on a cult that's never been ridden. There's like some, some poetry and some prophecy about that. And then we also get um, in the Roman world, this is all a, 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 an image of, of a military processional. It's, it was called a triumphus. It was a certain kind of parade almost that you would go into town if you were the emperor or a ruler or a, 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 a military general that had just had a great victory. You would ride into town like this and you would ride an animal and, and you would ride one that's never been ridden or after you were done with it there was like part of the lodge like to show honor to you that that no one would ever ride that animal again it was only for you it was it was it was it was you know <laughs> it was dedicated just to you and so we see jesus then playing intentionally with this image of being like some sort of a, a conquering king or an emperor maybe even some sort of general someone like that and this would play to both roman and israelite audiences in the town and in luke's audience as his, or the readers of the, of the text. And, uh, and this is kind of playing on their messianic expectation. He's kind of, it looks like he's accepting that role. Yeah, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to ride in on a, on a, on a donkey, on, on one that's never been ridden. And it was common for kings and soldiers at the time to be able to commandeer horses from people just whenever they needed to. So this kind of would have been expected. And it was a way of him showing, yeah, I'm taking on that role. Um, and yet we have Jesus choosing a donkey instead of a horse. 
And the convention at the time would be like, if you were a, a proud conqueror and you were showing off your power, you would ride in on a, like a majestic steed, you know? Um, but Jesus chooses a donkey, which is thought of as, as a humble animal and would be only be used in this kind of procession if the procession was, was declaring some sort of peace on the people. So it's, it's almost like a, like a humble choice. He is, he's choosing the place of a king, but in a humble, peaceful kind of way. Um, and uh, the fact that it's never been written, I forgot to mention this earlier, um, would also have some special meaning for Israelites. Um, because when you presented animals um, for sacrifices and for dedications in the temple, they had to be like pure and unused or unmarked or something like that. So it's almost like there's some sort of sacrificial, uh, religious, spiritual meaning attached to it being a, a donkey that's never been ridden. Um, and so Jesus is here kind of ushering in himself as king. The kingdom of God is here. You know, salvation has come. And so as the story then continues on from this point, the question about when we think about Jesus is going to be, what kind of a king is Jesus going to show himself to be? And already we've seen him choose some things with that and choosing a donkey instead of a horse. And then we have to watch the people that he meets and how are they going to react? Let's go ahead and continue on. As Jesus rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully. And with a loud voice, uh, they began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen. And they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. So here's where we now see, we've seen how Jesus presents himself. Now we're seeing how the crowd reacts or receives Jesus in various ways. Um, so there would be a crowd about this time. We learn later that it's that it's the time of Passover. So there would be lots of, of people going on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to join in the festivities in the city if they can. Um and we also have just the regular residents of the town. And, and so as Jesus enters, his disciples are there and they're, they're cheering and they're throwing their cloaks down and people start singing and more and more people seem to be joining until it becomes kind of a little bit out of hand almost. It's, uh, he, he rides in just on a donkey, but it kind of becomes a big parade. It's, it's a certain kind of triumphus. Now, the deal with the cloaks, um, when people welcomed a king, this happens in the book of 2 Kings 9, earlier in the Bible, they would throw down their cloaks on the, on the road to show that they were receiving the king in that way, with honor. Um, so the people are reacting to Jesus presenting himself as a king by welcoming him as a king. And it says that they've heard about the, the amazing things he's done and the power deeds of power they had seen. So they're very excited. And um, they, they, they then sing a song, and it's from the book of Psalms, chapter 118, we have it. And this is actually a song that they would sing at Passover. So it's very timely that this is the moment and the place where they're using it. Um, and it's a song about a saving king, about a Messiah. In the original song, it says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And here, Luke and the people that sing it that he's quoting have, have made a little translation, and they've said it, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So we see their messianic expectation. The kingdom of God is coming. It's, it's building. Um, and, uh, and they are then kind of welcoming him as, as, as the Psalm says, like, like a conquering king coming to take his, his land. Um, so there's a little bit of a military tinge to it as they use this song. In the original um, text of that Psalm, it's, it's all about, oh, we, we need someone to come and save us. We'll save us from, save us from our enemies. Um, so this is the song that they choose to sing. 
Um, but then they also follow that military kind of reception and language with the line peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. So it's like, it's kind of a weird mix of identifying him as some sort of a, a conquering king or leader in some way, but then declaring peace in heaven. And if you, if you have a good mind and if you followed us in the podcast, you'll, you'll, you might remember that this echoes the song that the angels sing in chapter two, when Jesus is born. And so we have to kind of sit back here and pretend that we're in Luke's original audience for like, we're hearing the story maybe for the first time, if you've heard it before and kind of wonder, it's the kind of peace that Jesus brings. Is it a real peace about community restoration and about everyone being welcome and stuff like that? Like the end of struggle and violence, or is it going to be kind of like a, a Roman piece, like the Pax Romana, like the, the, the conquering leader would ride into town and declare peace, but that only became after they had defeated that villages, that towns, that cities military, like only after lots of death and bloodshed, they come in and then declare peace. And it's a peace that always comes the threat of further violence. And so what kind of King is Jesus going to choose to be? What kind of peace is this. And then we see a response. So that's the response from the crowd. They are, they're excited. They receive him as king. Maybe some mixed ideas about what he's going to do. But then we see this interesting response from the Pharisees. And they're like, whoa, stop the party. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, these, these, these Pharisees like go to Jesus and as, as the rab, as their rabbi of his followers, it would be Jesus's job to be responsible for his students' behavior. And so they go to him and they're like, tell your disciples to stop this now, like this ruckus, this thing. And, and we don't know exactly what their motive is for wanting to stop it. Like, are they concerned that it's like, hey, if you come in and be welcomed as a Messiah, you're going to get us all in big trouble with Rome or with Herod because they don't want a Messiah. You're going to get us all in big trouble. Like before this gets out of hand, stop it. Or it could be that they're like, no, we don't think Jesus is the Messiah. We don't like the way he does things. We want him to stop this now. Not really sure. The story leaves it open for us. Um, and then Jesus gives this interesting response. He's like, hey, I tell you, if these stone, if they were silent, the stones would shout out. Um, this actually draws from some imagery from different poems in the Old Testament where creation itself kind of responds to something that God is doing. And so Jesus is like, this is, this, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than, than the crowd. This is, this is bigger than it is. This is a, this is a cosmic event. If, if we all decided to be silent, the very creation itself would start shouting out. Um, and we can't, you can't stop it. So I'm not going to stop it. So here we go. <laughs> Let's continue on in the story. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you... Even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So Jesus here weeps over the city. It's This is maybe the kind of peace he's going to bring. He even says that this could all be avoided if you knew the things that make for peace. Like he predicts destruction, but he's like, oh, we came here to make peace. Like Jesus is accepting the kingly role, but he's rejecting the military like uh, paradigm for how uh, someone should save the world and usher in the kingdom of God. He only wants to make peace. 
And because he doesn't think the crowd and the leaders and the city itself is going to accept it, he then predicts its destruction. And uh, we know, I mean, just from history, that in about 35 years after after this this moment uh, in the Jesus story, the Romans, sure enough, are going to come in and destroy Jerusalem. And if you go back to our, our introductory uh, episodes of the podcast, you'll hear all about that. And it was awful. And they will kill and enslave anyone they find. And Jesus, he's not there to rub it in. He's actually just there to, to weep and to lament over it. And so in the story, again, we find that Luke sets it up as an irony that this is the, 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 the place where it's like the best of the best of religion and the best of the best of the politics and the best in the elites who should be leading the country and most aware of what is supposed to be happening and most close to God, you might even say, are there. And yet they are the ones that are going to miss him but you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So there's like an ironic twist to the story. Let's go ahead and continue on. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. Um, so this is our last little section of the, of the text of chapter 19. And so Jesus goes in, he, he, conf- he has a disagreement. There's the parade. He disagrees with the Pharisees. He goes right in and weeps over the city. And then he goes directly to the temple and he's not there to, to, to just kind of worship and, and join in. In the festivities, he actually starts driving out those who are selling things there. Um, so selling things in the temple, what's that all about? Um, so if you were a pilgrim and you came from far away um, and you weren't particularly well off or if, or if you uh, had to travel a long way and couldn't travel with an animal or with grain or oil or something like that to sacrifice and give as a gift as an offering in the temple, you could buy one there and you could buy one in the temple. And as that kind of practice and that custom started, it ended up developing into a thing where people could make a business selling people things to use in the temple. And uh, I won't get into it too deeply. When I, when I was a kid, they always used to tell us about, oh, and it became this big like like extortion, basically. Um, and it was basically a, a, a big, very profitable money-making scheme off of people. Um, I don't want to press that too hard, but the fact is, is that there's people who are making money off of other people's worship. Um, And they had taken the temple from being a place where all are able to come and be close to God and stuff like that um, and have a, have a spiritual experience there. And they, they turned it into a place for profit. And so their true nature is, is being revealed. They're not using the temple and seeing it as a, a wonderful place for all to come and experience the blessing and the favor and the grace of God. They're like, Oh, you know, this is an, an economic opportunity for us because there's vulnerable people who need a good something to offer. Um, and Jesus constantly clashes with establishment folks over these kind of things. He, he is himself criticized over not worshiping properly, not washing properly, not following the customs properly, not sacrificing properly. But then he always turns around and criticizes those people um, who criticize him for using religion for their own gain. And he sees that as a much worse offense 
um, because they're they're perverting the very nature of what they're supposed to be doing as God's people in the world. And so um, in Luke 19, we get this line, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And it seems like that's happening here. He's like, you're, you're tr- you say you're trying to help people worship and stuff well, but really you're just making a profit for yourself. And in enforcing the customs, you're actually making it more of a burden on people. And you're keeping people away from experiencing God. And so it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Um, and so Jesus's plan here then is to, is to not just drive those people out and then take off and let them fix it, but he drives the people out. And then immediately Luke says every day he was there teaching in the temple. It's like, it's like he's rededicating it. It's like he's restoring it to what it's supposed to be. Um, we get this line about um, it being a, a house of prayer, Jesus says, and that's a line from Isaiah 56. Um, and in Isaiah 56, the actual full line is, uh, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. It's, it's this, it's this prophecy about how if the temple and is, is being used correctly, it's supposed to be a place where not just Israelites, but all people from all over the world, all Gentiles and everyone should be welcome to come and to worship. And yet there's people who are in charge there are actually making it more difficult for people to come and worship. And so Jesus stays to teach every day. He hangs out. Um, he, he kind of puts up shop, you know, his own, and he's not charging people things. He's actually trying to give them the, the truth. We're going to get into what he starts teaching people next chapter. Um, and then we get this line that Luke includes about how they react, how the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of all the people react to him doing this after he drives people out. And after he starts teaching in the temple, they look for a way to kill him. And others in the crowd are spellbound by what he hears. So it's this weird reaction uh, amongst two different groups of people in the crowd where many people accept and are excited about him still, like the parade continues on. And yet some other people are upset and they reject him and they're looking for not just rejection of him and to get rid of him, but to actually kill him to get rid of him. And so again, we get this ironic twist that the leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, the people who should, if they know the law the best and stuff like that, I ideally should be able to identify Jesus the most easily and see what's really going on and, and most clearly be able to, to make out a path forward for peace. Yet their true nature is being revealed. They start to plot to kill him. And, uh, and I don't think it's an accident that Luke throws in that phrase, the chief priests here. And we're going to talk about that as we get into our lo-fi questions. Um, let's go ahead and dig into those. So here we go, lo-fi questions. Uh, we always ask three questions to kind of help us uh, look at the story from a couple different angles and really uh, take the story as a story before we try and take it as something else. And so what is God like in this story? Um, if Jesus, if you buy into the premise of Luke that Jesus is the, the son of God, is is either God himself or, or, or somehow related to God in a special way that, that other people aren't really, um, Jesus kind of here identifies himself further and more deeply in that way um, as being God uh, or, or, or connected to God. And so when we want to see what God is like and answer this question, if we're buying into Luke's premise as an author, then we can just look at what Jesus is like. And um, Jesus, a couple of things. Uh, one, that's kind of interesting and quick. Um, Jesus has no no donkey or horse of his own. He has to, he has to borrow one. Um, and, and I wonder if when people read this, they were like, oh, like God is identified with people who don't have those things of their own. Maybe God has a special kind of connection to, to people in poverty 
of people who struggle a little bit. That's kind of interesting. At least, at least in comparison to Jesus identifying with some sort of conquering emperor or fancy military general or something like that. Um, and then we see that God um, in this story presents himself as being humble and peaceful. He's not there as, as a conqueror, um, as a general. He chooses the donkey over the horse. And we've seen this before in the book. It's a constant theme. Um, there's the, the passage from a few chapters ago of the, the hen versus the eagle. We talked about that pretty extensively. Um, you know, the, the mother hen who takes care of people who gathers together the eagle who goes to strike and destroy. And then further on that, after he just presents himself in the in the parade that way, the first thing he does, he goes in and he weeps over what he believes of the future destruction of these people. Even amidst this crowd where some people are opposing him and plotting to kill him and some people love him because of the amazing things he can do. He knows it's headed in a bad way, and he's sad about that. This doesn't sound like a God who's particularly interested in being judgmental over people and punishing people. At least if, if, if people experience some sort of terrible consequences or destruction or death or, or pain, he's not taking joy in it. He, in fact, he cries over it. That's really interesting. Um, you know, it, it would be one thing if he showed up and he was like, yeah, you guys are going to get what you deserve because you guys rejected, you guys are going to reject me. It's like, no, they're going to miss it. And I'm so sad and broken over that. Interesting. Um, and then furthermore, last thing, we just get this picture of God that God gets pretty upset. The one thing that God does get really upset about is when people in power abuse other people. The leaders are supposed to have a particular job. They're supposed to be the caretakers. They're supposed to be the servants. They're supposed to be taking care of others and pointing away and providing an example and making things easier for people. And yet he has to drive them out of the temple because they're only making it harder for their own selfish gain. Really interesting. And that just makes him very, very upset. Question number two, lo-fi question. What are people like in this part of the story of this part of one book of Luke? Um, we get the, the two different examples. Um, I'm going to give a couple different ones. We get the crowd versus the establishment throughout the whole story. You know, we get like this, the, the, the crowd, his followers and the people that join in. And then we get this establishment group, Pharisees, priests, uh, teachers of the law, scribes, ta- you know, uh, sellers in the temple, people like that. Um, I'm, I'm just going to call them the establishment. And some people receive God with his peaceful arrival, excitedly and with enthusiasm. And some people, when they see that God, oppose it. And it's kind of interesting to think about that. Like, we, I, I often think like, well, who wouldn't want to, who wouldn't be excited if, if Jesus was here, if he was going around just showing peace and love on everybody and teaching a new way. But there are some throughout the story that just are like, no, that's not what we want. In fact, we have to kill him. <laughs> It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and, and then beyond that, let's push it a little further. We get this perfect example where Luke sets up two clear figures, two different chiefs. We get Zacchaeus in the last story and we get these chiefs, these establishment folks in this part of the story. Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, accepts Jesus, welcomes him into his home, hears his message, experiences love from Jesus, and then says, and then like buys into Jesus hard. It's just like, fine, I'm going to, I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to change my whole life. I'm on, I'm, I'm in with you, Jesus, you know? And then we get these, this other chief, like think of the stereotypical member of this establishment 
who sees Jesus, who experiences his pronouncements of peace and, and love and goodness and rejects that and doesn't reject it a little, but rejects it hard plot to kill. They don't, this is, this isn't like going to continue on as a debate much longer. It's like, they're like, we have to end this. Um, so Zacchaeus receives Jesus and changes his life, joins in and Jesus pronounces you get salvation today in this household. The salvation has come. The kingdom of God is here. And yet these establishment chiefs oppose him, plot against him. And Jesus says, you're going to get destruction coming soon. Like one receives Jesus, gets salvation. The other one rejects Jesus, gets destruction. And here's what's really interesting. Jesus has compassion for both chiefs. He goes right up to Zacchaeus. He restores him to community. He says, I want to be with you. I want to table fellowship with you. I want to be close to you. I want to be identified with you. I want to be close. And Jesus goes right in through the parade and he drives some people out, but then he stays there in the temple to restore it, to fix it. He weeps over them. He has compassion over both the people that oppose him and reject him and over the people who accept him excitedly. Isn't that interesting? And so uh, looking at that still, there's kind of, I thought this was kind of fun to note in the Zacchaeus story, Zacchaeus, uh, the, the chief praises Jesus. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector, praises Jesus. The whole crowd grumbles against Jesus in that story. Here, he makes his entry into Jerusalem and the whole crowd praises Jesus. And these chiefs grumble against him. So it's like they're flip floppy all around. And, and I think this story, Luke portrays us this, this, picture of what human beings are like, where it's like human beings are just all over the place and they're where their allegiances lie, what they're excited about, like changes on a whim so quickly. And maybe that gives us a clue as to why Jesus has such tough criticisms for the leaders, because it's like, if only there were good leaders here to help them make the right response when Jesus shows up. But there's always someone who's, who, who just doesn't get it and who doesn't join in. And that's kind of interesting. And so why this story? Why does Luke um, write this story here in Luke 19? Um, why did he write it for his readers? Why does his readers read it and keep it in the book or not edit it out or something like that? Why was this book preserved amongst many, 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 many other books and writings and for, for hundreds of years before it was then canonized, this particular story is canonized into, into Christian scripture, you know, and stuff like that. So this story has endured many, many levels of possible points where it could have been taken out or changed or something like that. And so what is it about this story that people have found so good, so intriguing, so helpful? So something like that. That's our third lo-fi question. And, and let me take a stab at it like this. Um, I think people at the time might have thought it was hugely important to see, to hear a story where God goes and weeps and expresses great compassion over people who are experiencing destruction, particularly about this story where Jesus is in Israel and Jesus has so much compassion over the city of Jerusalem um, because Luke's original audience would have lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. And if they're a Jewish reader, remember, this is like the, they've witnessed and lived through the destruction of their people, their source of identity. They maybe had family members 
who died or were enslaved, you know, after the destruction of the city. And if they're reading this today, they get to a story where Jesus shows up and he predicts the destruction, but he shows great compassion and weeps over it. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't rub it in. He's not like you get what you deserve or anything like that. He has compassion over it. And this, this teaches this, this kind of picture of God teaches so many good things. It teaches a good theology that God is loving, that God doesn't desire destruction to happen to anyone. But it also then teaches the readers a good way to live. In Jesus' example, like, let's, I, I, I hear like Luke in recording the story and giving it to people saying like, let's not be eager to judge others and to celebrate the pain of other people. Let's point a, a new way towards a new peace. And maybe they found that in the story. Like this is a new way to live where we don't believe that God rejoices in our destruction, even when our people make huge mistakes. Or if the readers aren't Jewish, if they're Roman of Luke's gospel, they get the challenge of, Let's not be people no longer who take joy in the destruction of others, even people who maybe bothered us or were our enemies for a time or something like that. And so you can, they get a, a picture of Jesus that's in direct contrast to, to the way of Rome that would only do peace through violence and subjugation. They even get a picture of Jesus that's in contrast to the, to the Jewish leaders who are now eager to kill him um, to protect their own power. Um, and if there's Roman people and Jewish people within this community that's receiving Luke's book, you know, remember this was written as a letter and it would be transferred around city to city to city. And if they're sitting there and they're reading this, there's likely Roman people there. There's likely some Jewish people there. And they have to answer the question of how are we going to get along? How do we treat each other when we're different kinds of people from different cultures? And they get this picture of God as being like, we or I am compassionate. And I don't rejoice in another person's pain. Maybe that's what enables them to, to break down cultural boundaries between them and live on as a people together. Um, and to find that when pain and suffering comes in their life, they can read the story and, and see that Jesus is the kind of God that weeps with them when they have pain. And that's a very different kind of God than we get in a, in, in a lot of other stuff, especially the way religion was used at the time. I find that fascinating. And I think, I wonder if they found that fascinating too. And maybe that's why they were like, this part of the story needs to stay in. Remember that part where Jesus goes to the temple and he cries? Let's keep that part in. And also maybe answer, help them answer the question, you know, answering why is the story important? It's, it's the question of how are we going to experience salvation in the world? Like Jesus pronounces salvation in the Zacchaeus story. He pronounces destruction in the other. And so it's like, which chief are they going to be like? Which, which, which model for them is going to lead them more towards a good way as opposed to a bad way? The way of this tax collector who repents and gives away and shares and joins in? Or the way of these other chiefs that oppose and reject and plot against and try to silence. I mean, Zacchaeus becomes this great model of being generous and, and welcoming to all others. And he gives away his power and his wealth. And the leaders in this story, they're the ones who are selling stuff in the temple. They take advantage of others. 
they're selfish. They're only interested in kind of preserving their own power. And that's going to come up big into play in the very next chapter. And so we look back on that parable from the first half of the chapter, um, where it was like, how do we properly prepare for the Messiah? Like if he's delayed for a while and he's away and we're supposed to be servants here, how do we do that right? And these examples of the two chiefs and they're immediately before and right after that parable maybe provided these people with a way to answer that. What do we do while we're still here on earth? What do we do with what we have? Are our lives to be used for others or just for ourselves? What a great story. Um, maybe that's something for you to think about over uh, this next week while we wait for the next episode to come out. Um, I hope you are well. It was so good to be back here and I'm wrapping it up. I thought my son was going to come in and interrupt because he should be home from his tap dancing lesson at any moment. My son, he's seven and he does tap dancing now. Isn't that the cutest thing ever? Um, so yeah. Um, thank you for listening to one more episode of Lo-Fi Electionary. You made it all the way to the end. Um, I'm already in the midst of the, the research for Luke 20, so hopefully I can keep my health up and, uh, and my schedule open so I can sit down and, and finish it out and record it again soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all your support. And uh, if you liked this, please get in touch. You'll hear the, the way it's to contact me coming up pretty soon. Thanks a lot, everyone. Have a good night. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.